Today's episode of Ministry Monday is sponsored by the 2022 Winter Colloquium, taking place February 14th through 16th in Nashville, Tennessee. NPM presents Open Hearts and Minds, Intercultural Mystagogia for Pastoral Leaders, a three-day event focusing on looking through the lens of interculturalism. How can we best celebrate our differences to create unity and diversity through the experience of the community of prayer? Learn more about the Winter Colloquium at npm.org. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is Episode 188 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. Today, we are happy to share an episode of Meet Father Rivers on the podcast. Author and musician Emily Strand examines the life, legacy, and her own brief personal encounter with a little-known but essential figure in American Catholic history, Black liturgist and composer Father Clarence Joseph Rivers. In this episode of Meet Father Rivers, podcast host Emily Strand tells the story of Father Rivers' early career and the efforts toward liturgical enculturation that eventually brought him fame. She talks to Dr. Jesse Thomas, who was a child at St. Joseph's School in Cincinnati, Ohio, when Father Rivers was a young priest in the late 1950s. Emily recounts an early incident of liturgical disobedience by Father Rivers, effectively protesting the exclusion of black forms of music in Catholic worship. We'd like to thank Emily for allowing us to replay this episode of Meet Father Rivers and hope that you will subscribe to that podcast as well. Hi, my name is Emily Strand. I'm an author, college professor, church musician, and podcaster, and there's someone I'd like you to meet. I interviewed this person, Clarence Joseph Rivers, when I was in graduate school for theology at the University of Dayton. He was a Roman Catholic priest in Cincinnati, Ohio, who, in his long, illustrious career, broke barriers of race, culture, art, and worship. He was an engine of insight who invented new standards of Catholic worship composing new songs when old ones no longer served, all during a period of rapid and revolutionary change in the Catholic Church. Despite Rivers' significant and lasting contributions, he remains an obscure figure in American Catholic history, and my goal in this podcast is to change that in appreciation for how this man changed and inspired me. His name was Father Clarence Joseph Rivers, 
and I'd like you to meet him. Episode 3, Single-Handedly Starting a Revolution. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get into Father Rivers' story. What made him such a significant figure in American Catholic history? What did he do to change how our worship sounds today? Why did he tell me, upon my first contact with him, that he had single-handedly started a revolution? The explanation that follows is primarily taken from two sources— The first is my master's thesis, defended in 2004 at the University of Dayton, containing excerpts from the personal interviews I conducted with Father Rivers. The second is Father Rivers' own account, published in a long article called Freeing the Spirit, Very Personal Reflections on One Man's Search for the Spirit in Worship, in spring of 2011 in the journal U.S. Catholic Historian, I'll include full bibliographic references to both these works in the show notes. I especially encourage you to read Father Rivers' own account of his life and career for yourself. His written voice is poetic and engaging and full of wry humor. Along the way, we'll supplement these two sources with some audio recordings and a firsthand eyewitness account from our special guest today, Dr. Jesse Thomas. So I've got my thesis here from the University of Dayton. It's in one of those black bound, uh, you know, covers. It's a solid thing. It exists on my shelf, and I believe it exists on a shelf in the Religious Studies Department at the University of Dayton. So I'll read to you a little bit from it. This is from the the section entitled, Single-Handedly Starting a Revolution. On September 9, 1931, in Selma, Alabama, a boy was born who would alter American Catholic worship forever. Clarence Rivers moved with his family to Cincinnati, Ohio, sometime after the 1937 flood, and attended St. Anne's Elementary School under the direction of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. He was enrolled in Catholic school not because it was his family's faith—they were Baptists and Presbyterians— but rather due to his father's fear of his children being exposed to fighting in the public schools. The family was comfortable with this decision, perhaps due to Rivers' maternal grandmother's experience with and admiration for the charitable works performed by Catholic nuns in Selma. Rivers recalls she often vowed, if there ever was a Christian, he was a Catholic, with great emotion for every syllable of the word. When asked why she herself did not become a Catholic, she would note with regret, their worship is much too cold. Both her admiration and criticism would resonate in Rivers' work as a liturgical innovator. It was at St. Anne's School that Rivers first encountered and, in his words, began falling in love with the liturgy. He recalled learning deliberateness and grace of movement, instructions which he took very seriously— envisioning himself and the other acolytes as facilitators or MCs, as it were, of the liturgical actions. During Holy Week, the boys, including Rivers, were initiated into the elaborate rituals as much as the beliefs they formalize. In his first year at St. Anne's, Rivers was baptized into the church. Without over-romanticizing his initiation into the church, 
After all, Rivers describes it rather unemotionally and claims the only permission sought from his family was in the form of a note sent home to his mother. It does appear that mystagogical catechesis, that is, catechizing through liturgical practice, not unlike that used by Bishop Ambrose to initiate St. Augustine and others, was part of how Rivers came to be Catholic. It was definitely not how I came to be Catholic. I came to be Catholic because I was baptized as an infant, but it certainly is how I came to be a liturgist and a church musician as well. After his 10th grade year, Rivers, who had expressed an interest in the priesthood, entered St. Gregory's Seminary in Cincinnati at the urging of his pastor. Let me pause to to look at a footnote here that I included in my thesis because I think it says something important. Rivers is, again, fairly unromantic in his descriptions of this early period and the decisions that led him into ordained ministry. He claims that when his eighth grade teacher asked for a show of hands— as to who was interested in the priesthood, his significantly darker hand was the one on which the teacher fixated, although many hands in the class were raised. Rivers says as a boy, he more wanted to be a scientist. I don't include this as a way of undercutting the notion of his vocation, but simply to be faithful to his story as he told it to me. Upon completion of his training and ordination, Rivers became the first African-American to be accepted and ordained to serve the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Another African-American seminarian, Theldon Jones, was ordained before Rivers, but he was sent upon his ordination to serve in Trinidad. I think that's significant because while Theldon Jones was sent to serve in a predominantly black country, Father Rivers was ordained and stayed to serve in Cincinnati where he was certainly among the minority. St. Joseph's, an African-American parish in Cincinnati's West End, was Father Rivers' first assignment after his ordination in 1956. He commented that, as the first African-American priest ordained to serve the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, sending him to St. Joseph's was the only thing they knew to do with me. It became the community which incubated Father Rivers' liturgical innovations, and efforts toward enculturation. Father Rivers reflected that in the late 1950s, conversation on worship was not divided along conservative and liberal lines. If such divisions had been in place, Monsignor Clement J. Busemeyer, the characteristically crusty pastor of St. Joseph's, would perhaps not have been as open-minded about experimentation in liturgical renewal as he was. Rivers seemed to think it was the realization of urgent pastoral need for participation in worship that limited the polarization of liturgical dialogue, especially at St. Joseph's. Busemeyer was a conservative priest, yet through his involvement with St. Joseph's, understood that black culture had something to offer toward the engagement of the congregation. Soon after Rivers' arrival as associate pastor, Busemeyer approached the young priest with his concerns about the ineffectiveness of worship for the parish community. Pusemeyer said, People are coming to church only because they're afraid of catching hell if they don't. Can you do something about this? Rivers blamed youthful naivete for his ambitious response. Yes, I think I can. I think I can do something about this. Perhaps it was more than ingenuous enthusiasm. When Rivers entered the seminary in 1946, 
he had found himself anxious at the prospect of presiding in liturgy. I'll have to know how to sing, he told himself, and began not only taking voice lessons, as we discussed with my mom in episode two from Dr. Vincent Orlando. He also began associating with the Loveland, Ohio headquarters of the Grail Movement, an organic farming community that promoted a simpler lifestyle as well as liturgical reform. And you'll note that also in episode two, he told me about the Grail and his involvement with it in my very first conversation with him. To be fair, Rivers reports a combination of boredom and an interest in science and nature to have attracted him to the place as much as his affinity for liturgy. When asked if the progressivism at the Grail had appealed to him upon his initial encounters with the Grail, Rivers says he didn't notice the high aesthetic and participative standards that characterized liturgy there, but rather took them for granted. We can assume the innovative spirit there must have reached him on some level, since he celebrated one of his first post-ordination masses at Grailville and spent so much time there he was rumored to be the official chaplain to the Grail women. Rivers laughs at this, but admits that his associations with that community were part of what had given him, upon his arrival as associate pastor at St. Joseph's, a deserved or undeserved reputation for being interested in the liturgy. Rivers' reputation with liturgy excited Pastor Busemeyer, who had at one time attempted to arrange a performance of Negro spirituals at the cathedral in Cincinnati, but had been told such, quote, secular music would not be permitted. Fortunately, the spirit of such an obtuse remark did not limit Busemeyer, who insisted there was a place for black music in the Catholic Church. Liturgist and academic Father Boniface Lukes, a Belgian Norbertine monk who had done mission work in the Congo and often stopped by St. Joseph's on his way to teach his annual course at Notre Dame, introduced Father Rivers to the Misa Luba, a Congolese mass setting. Rivers immediately arranged for the St. Joseph's school children to learn the Mass. And here we can listen to a little bit of the Misa Luba, which I happen to find on YouTube, although I am not the person who placed it there. Uh, I, I am grateful to that person who placed the Misa Luba on YouTube. You can listen to all of it there. I'll play just a little clip of it for you now. This is from the Kyrie, or Lord Have Mercy. a moment here to talk about this really fascinating piece of music that we just sampled. The Misa Luba was one of several world music mass settings floating around the globe in the early 20th century. A lot of Catholics don't realize that a major impetus of the Second Vatican Council came from global missionaries. Many felt their efforts in sharing the gospel around the globe would be greatly aided if the Mass, which had become entrenched in a European aesthetic that was not inherent in its form, could be enculturated to express the cultural sensibilities of the people they served, who were not European. It was a noble desire to distinguish missionary work from cultural imperialism, and the Church responded affirmatively to that desire with the liturgical reforms of Vatican II. If you're interested in what the Council said specifically about liturgical enculturation, 
see its first major promulgation, Sacrosanctum Concilium, or the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, paragraphs 37 through 40. So one can hear that pioneering spirit of enculturation so needed at the time in the Misa Luba. It is credited to a Belgian Franciscan, Father Guido Hazen, but he developed it together with the Congolese people he served from improvisations on traditional song forms. By the way, there's a Wikipedia page about the Misa Luba, so you can learn more about it there. Again, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, The source list is probably the most valuable thing about it. A few people seem to have done their graduate research on the piece, and you'll see those in the source listings. And Interestingly, the piece is credited and referenced in some unexpected places in popular culture, such as films, rock songs, and as one of the major influences for the band Led Zeppelin's signature sound. I'm not sure I hear that myself, but I can certainly hear how it would have influenced Father Rivers. So back to Father Rivers' story and uh, his relationship with Father Boniface Lukes, who introduced him to the Misa Luba, and who, you know, maybe even knew the the uh, credited uh, Belgian composer of it. Lukes also challenged Rivers to start composing music for the liturgy, quote, out of my own background, he said, and not to rely so heavily, as was the custom, on European music for compositional purposes. But Rivers, although surprisingly undaunted by that challenge, was still not sure how such compositions, which, like the Misa Luba, would undoubtedly employ elements and instruments strongly, if wrongly, associated with profane or secular music, would be greeted by his conservative pastor. But when Busemeyer, on the occasion of strolling through the elementary school one day, heard the robust spirit with which the school children rehearsed the piece— his encouragement of Rivers' experimentation only increased. He insisted that the children sing the Misa Luba at his 25th ordination jubilee, and as Rivers states, quote, the barn door had been left open. In due time, in rushed the spirituals, gospel, jazz, my occasional compositions, and all the rest. Thus did pastoral need supervisory sanction from his pastor, and a strong spirit of innovation combine in Rivers to enable his important contributions to American liturgical style. After all, Rivers reports that there were no contemporary American idioms being composed in worship music at this time. Only 19th century German and Italian Renaissance models were being used for composition by serious church musicians. But then, on a rocky flight from Virginia Beach, after delivering a speech on race relations, a young Rivers found himself creating a melody for a passage out of a still-new English-language breviary. God is love, and he who abides in love, abides in God, and God in him. Soon, the song spread to the St. Joseph's community and beyond and led to more compositional efforts by Rivers. He soon found himself in high demand, not only for these compositions, but for his often quite fruitful efforts to encourage congregational participation and more effective worship. He began to speak and guest direct at Protestant and Catholic churches across the country, which brought more than a little notoriety something Rivers to this day does not consider indicative of his talent. He said, If I received notoriety at that time, it wasn't because I was all that good. 
It's just that there wasn't any competition. Then, in 1964, when the Second Vatican Council had pushed reform of the liturgy into the brightest of spotlights, Rivers was asked to offer a rendition of his song, God is Love, at the liturgical conference in St. Louis. It was one of the first ever public masses celebrated in English in the United States. He said, It was like electricity had gone through the place. All the Frankensteins came to life. Instantly, Rivers was a star of the new liturgy, and the floodgates of contemporary folk composition opened, not just in the African-American community, but through a wide cultural cross-section of composers who had been influenced by Rivers' song. Now, I want to talk more about God is Love in a future episode, and I'd especially like to talk about that moment in 1964 when Father Rivers hit, or went viral, we might say in today's parlance. Father Rivers would probably sternly object to me using that phrase due to its ambiguous connotations, especially in a global pandemic. I'm looking for someone who was there in St. Louis for the 1964 liturgical conference and can tell us what it was like hearing Father Rivers sing a song, the likes of which no one had really heard in Mass, and maybe even confirm or deny the rumor I heard that Father Rivers was given a 10-minute standing ovation for his rendition. If you can help us with that that part of the story, please do be in touch. Meetfatherrivers at gmail.com. In fact, we have a lot of new handles for this show. Please stay tuned to the end to hear how to connect with us and how to follow the show. But right now, it's time to speak with an important guest who can give us a window into Father Rivers' early career, Dr. Jesse Thomas, who was a grade school student at St. Joseph Elementary School when Father Rivers was first beginning his ministry as associate pastor. Dr. Jesse is now all grown up and a professor of homiletics. I was grateful that Dr. Jesse shared not only her experiences with Father Rivers with me, but something of her own story as well. I will say with regret that a cricket in my basement really wanted to be on the podcast. So he is, and he has a voice, or at least legs, here on Meet Father Rivers. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Jesse Thomas, for joining me today on Meet Father Rivers. Well, good morning, Emily. It's good to be with you today. Uh, I am Dr. Jesse Thomas. I am a theologian in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. It even sounds funny for me to say that as a woman, just to say that I'm a theologian, but I am. Uh, I have studied uh, at the Athenaeum of Ohio. I have also studied at uh, St. Louis Aquinas Institute of Theology, and I have a doctorate in homiletics. Uh, and I'm very, very happy about that. I'm very excited. It came to me later in life, but uh, it was something that was that happened to me. And that's who I am. I am married. I'm married to a deacon and I have two very grown children. Uh, so that's me. That's great. Thank you. I, I, I get what you're saying when you say it even seems strange to say that you're a theologian and <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I, there was some recent debate on 
Twitter or something about who can call themselves a theologian and who can't. But I proudly call myself a theologian as well. So I'm glad to hear you say that you do as well. Um, and, I, and I will also just say for our listeners who met my mom in the last episode of the podcast that I'm actually connected to you through my mom and dad because exactly. – your husband, Deacon Dan, was the deacon at their parish for many years, and they just loved him. And at my parents' 50th wedding anniversary celebration, I met you, and my mom – I think it was my mom who brought me over to you and said, she knew Father Rivers. And, exactly. And you and I had this very short conversation at the reception and with surrounded by a million people. And I just remember thinking, I want to talk to her again about that, maybe yeah. in a more quiet environment. Yes, and I'm <laughs> so glad you asked me to do this. I am oh, so happy. Thank you. It's it's just perfect. So so the way my understanding is, is that you were a student at St. Joseph Elementary in the days when Father Rivers was a young priest and was first beginning his not only his ordained ministry as a priest, but his ministry as a liturgist and a composer and an educator in liturgy. So, so tell us about what do you remember what years you were at St. Joseph? Yes, I do. I was trying to think that up, and it's been such a long time ago. Uh, I think, and if I'm not uh, mistaken, I was there from somewhere between uh, the the year of uh, 55, 1955, to around 59 or 60, somewhere around that. I think maybe 59, because I believe I was a freshman in high school in 1960. So I would have graduated from the eighth grade around 1959. So somewhere between those years. Because the first the first grade, I went to uh, St. Anne's, and St. Anne was considered the school for the colored. So I was at St. Anne's that first year, and then we moved, and I ended up at St. Joseph's. So, yeah. So it was somewhere between 55, 59, somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. Great. And those are highly relevant years to the story we're hearing in this episode. What were your first impressions of Father Rivers? This had to have been the first Black priest that Jesse ever encountered. And so what what were your first impressions of Father Rivers, and what was it like to meet a Black priest? Well, it was strange <laughs> to use that word. It was, um, you have to realize that it was during the time of segregation we were still segregated in, in many ways. Uh, I did go to school at St. Joe's with white children. There were white kids there and there were black kids there. And uh, But we didn't live in the same neighborhood. We lived very segregated. And all of a sudden, we had a black priest. We had never seen a black priest before. But we did have one black nun. Her name was Sister Francesca. And now all of a sudden we have a black priest. Well, we are just like beside ourselves. We have a black priest and a black nun. Oh my goodness. The set not... is complete. <laughs> right. The set is complete. We could not believe it. We didn't know what to say to him. We didn't know how to treat him. 
but I must tell you that he was so very good to all of us, to all the kids. But we just found him so very special because he looked like us. Yeah. You know, nobody who taught us except for Sister Francesca looked like us. Everybody was white, you know, uh, and the only reason or I won't say the only reason, but again, schools were segregated back then. Uh, black children were not allowed to go to public schools. And so my parent, my grandmother, who I stayed with at the time, because we had just come from the South, and Father Rivers had a very good statement about that. He said his parents came from the South too, and they came because they were trying to be upwardly mobile and middle class. That's what that was his statement. Upwardly mobile and middle class. So I suppose we were trying to be upwardly mobile and middle class as well. But we could not go. They could not enroll me into a public school. My grandmother was African Methodist and Episcopalian. And so she enrolled me into the Catholic school. And there came Father Rivers. And we were so excited, those of us who were Black kids, to see him. Were you Catholic at the time you enrolled in St. Joseph's? I was not Catholic, Um, but about the second grade, when all the little girls got to wear the white dresses and the beautiful veils, I really wanted to be Catholic. Oh, my God, I can't tell you. I just I think I wanted to be Catholic because I wanted to wear the white dress and the white veil, you know, (laughs) Uh, and so I was begging my grandma. I want to do this. I want to do this. And so by the time uh, I got to be about the fifth grade, my my grandmother's youngest child, who had been in the armed forces, came home, married to a Catholic woman. Hmm. And she said to me or to my aunt, take this child down to that church and see what needs to happen so that she can be baptized and become Catholic. And that is exactly what happened. And I think about that now and I thought, God, my grandma was forward. She was forward thinking and she allowed that to happen. And my aunt became my my, my uh, godparent yeah. and uh, I became Catholic. Yeah. Did, did Father Rivers baptize you? No, he was not the one who baptized me. Father Busmar mm-hmm. was the one who baptized mm-hmm. me. Yes, I think that's still a pretty good, <laughs> a pretty a good baptizer. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he, I mean, he played a, a strong role in sort of prompting Father Clarence to to do the work that he did. Um, you know, Father Busmar played a strong role in many of the African Americans who attended that school as well. Yeah, yeah, he seemed like a real advocate. Yes, he was a real advocate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of a, maybe an, even an unexpected advocate, you know, yes. I mean, because Father Rivers commented that, you know, he had no real reason to be encouraging this, you know, That's besides right. that he was just interested in the people's spirituality, you know, in, in right. being enhanced, you know. That's right. That's so that right. was your impression as well. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you've said earlier that Father Rivers was very good to all you children. So t- Tell me more about that. What what do you mean when you say that? Well, when I say that, not only was he concerned about our spirituality, I felt that, uh, but he was just concerned about us being uh, aware 
of what was around us, our surroundings, and how we could go forward in our lives. Um, uh, for instance, um, when he wrote his masses and he taught them to us, we sang them and we sang the parts. And then finally, when he thought that we were good enough, he would say, okay, this is it. Okay, you go home and you put on your Sunday best and you come back and we are going to the cathedral today. And he would say, the cathedral is yours as well. It's our cathedral. We're all going to the cathedral and we're going to sing this mass. We're going to sing glory to God. And so we would walk to the cathedral because it wasn't that far. And we would sing praises to God. And it was just so beautiful. I can still remember uh, those times that we did that. It was just so beautiful. A mass was performed. We sang his music. And it was just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. That's a really bold kind of way of sort of claiming that space. Yes. The heart of Catholicism in the region. And you guys are just entering in and singing these compositions. And singing his compositions. It was just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. I didn't, I had never heard that. I am excited about this because I'm hearing all these things I've never heard before. (laughs) I've heard around it, you know, but I haven't heard. Yeah. So um, what was it like? What was he like as a teacher? Of because he, he taught he taught you to sing and do do you remember this missaluba that he used um, yes. to, to this Congolese mass setting? Yes, yes. Well, he taught us and he taught us. Uh, I don't know. He was a music teacher. He was an author. He was a composer. I mean, he he wanted us to do it right, you know. And so <laughs> everything he did, he wanted us to do it right. An example, maybe not so much in the music, but uh, I used to, he had, a, he had a youth group. And those of us who were like maybe sixth, seventh, and eighth grade would meet with him once a week. And I, I want to say it was on a Thursday because that's what I kind of remember. But we would meet with him. We would come after hours to the rectory. And we would do things like, rehearse plays and and they would have to be perfect you know he'd give me a reading and it would be God's trombones and I can remember him still saying put diction on it give it more feeling give it this give it that you know and uh and you would because you knew him and that's how he taught us to sing you know the same uh, spirit that he had uh, when he taught us to read or whatever like that. And so as I grew older, I loved the spoken word. I always loved the spoken word because I had a grandmother who was very gifted with the spoken word. She was a storyteller. So I loved the spoken word. So I was getting it from him and I was getting it at home. So I just continued, continued, continued with my spoken word, and I loved it. I loved to read in church, and I always did that. And when I continued, one day I decided that, gee, I want to go to that Athenaeum, and I just want to take something. I want to be uh, in respect of the things that Father Rivers taught me how to do and that my grandma taught me how to do. 
And I thought I would just take one course and Lord, did I get hooked. (laughs) (laughs) I was there forever. (laughs) Spoken word draws you in. That's right. It drew me in. It drew me in. But yeah. Yeah. Um, You said, um, you mentioned to me earlier that he would take the youth group, Father Rivers would take the youth group to Grailville. Yes. What was that like? It was very interesting. It was a different space. You know, uh, most of us lived in the inner city uh, and it was just a different space. There was grass, you know, there were cows, there were, uh, there was a farm at that time. And um, they always had food and stuff on Sundays and he liked to eat there. So mostly on Sundays, he would like to go out there to eat, but he would take us for the ride. It would be like a Sunday afternoon ride. We'd go out and look at the cows and the farm. and, <laughs> and Realize there was life outside the city. That's right. That's right. It was fun. He also encouraged us. He would get tickets for us to go the whole, like maybe the whole seventh or eighth grade or sometimes maybe the whole school. We got tickets to the symphony. Uh, we went to the symphony at Music Hall. It was just right down the street. I remember that. We went several times to the symphony. So we got used to other things that were available to us. And and he arranged that for us, which was, I, I'm so um, happy about that today. I like all kinds of music. And so, yeah, I think that was a gift that he gave to us. Right, right. Again, mm-hmm. again, kind of taking you out of a more basic existence and into the arts and into the enjoyment of nature. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Wow. Um, you mentioned that you started taking courses at the Athenaeum and you actually took a course with father rivers at the Athenaeum. If I'm not yes, mistaken, it correct. Was before I went to the Athenaeum, they had a special course called the amen program. I don't know if you are aware of it. It was no. the Amen program. And the reason they started the program was to try to encourage more African-Americans to attend the Athenaeum. So they decided to have the course at St. Joseph in the African-American neighborhood. And I signed up for the course and the teachers actually came uh, from the Athenaeum to Uh, St. Joe's. And Father Rivers was one of the teachers. It was about how you prepare a mass. It was about the beauty of the mass and, and how you should put it together. He always said that uh, a mass should be like your finest play. It should be orchestrated like any fine play on Broadway. You should have the finest vestments. He always believed in that, you know, you should have everything, the finest gold, the finest everything, because you are serving the Lord. He was telling us how, as the first African-American, he went to the Athenaeum and he was ready. He had his nice clothing, and he had his beautiful Bible, which he had his name engraved on with his gold cross, and and they took it away from him because he was supposed to be more humble than that. 
And he was very, very upset about that because, you know, it's sort of almost like African culture. You know, African culture, they love the grand dress, the grand of all of it. That's just a part of who we are. You know, when we go to church on Sunday, we dress up because it's for the Lord. It's, you know, uh, many Africans or Black people were slaves in their culture. And so the only time that they got to really dress was on Sunday for the Lord, you know, for whatever minute type of dressing that they may have had, that was what they did. And so he was very upset about that. He said, they took it away from me. And I'm sure it was very difficult for him. You know, uh, it's not easy all the time being the only one. I've been the only one in a lot of spaces in my own life. And I know that it's not easy. So I can't imagine what it's like to be the first. Well, I can because I was the first African-American woman at uh, St. Louis. I was the first Mm. and only African-American woman to go to St. Louis Aquinas Institute of Theology. And I was told that on the first day, you are the first Black woman (laughs) to ever come here. And I was like, oh, my God, that means I have to be the first Black woman to graduate. (laughs) Right. And no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) With no pressure. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that white people don't often appreciate the pressure of those situations and the isolating factor of of being the only one That's and right. having, and having those little those little microaggressions of of people just not understanding the culture right. and like you said them taking away his his you know embossed bible i mean That's right you know i i i compare it, the the thing i have to compare it to is being a female and especially being a female in the catholic church and i remember That's having right. a de- debate with somebody about whether or not we should be kneeling when we receive communion. That's right. And and he this person who's a good friend of mine and he was arguing that this is really the only reverent posture that we can have is is getting on our knees for this. And right. my argument was, you know, no, because no. I experience oppression every day. I don't mean to be dramatic. I don't maybe right. I do mean to be dramatic, but That's I experience oppression every single day and when right. I approach the Lord, it is a reminder of my That's dignity. Right. That That's he is right. offering me this gift is a reminder of my dignity. And why should I not be standing at my full height to receive it? That's right. That's and right. and it's, it was funny because this person I was debating with, he, he kind of like was very taken aback. And he was like, I never thought of it like that. And I said, of course you don't. Of course you don't. Nothing's right. holding you back. You know, my mother used to tell me, she said, you know, the Lord knows you. If you're standing, if you're sitting, the Lord knows you already yeah. before you even approach him. For you walked so, in the door. You can wait. That's right. But I think but I think it's a reminder that we all have indignities that we've had to overcome. That's you know, right. Even if that's, it's sin even if it's our own just our own sinfulness or our own unwillingness to right. acknowledge other that's people's right. oppression, you know, that's in the face right. of our own freedoms. Right. At this point, I asked Dr. Jesse if there was anything further that she wished to share about her experiences with Father Rivers. Oh, I think that pretty much sums it up. He was just a very good person in my eyes. I did say to him when I got to the college level, 
I said, you know, you were so kind to us when we were kids. And I just want to thank you for that. Uh, and he said, I was. <laughs> it was kind of disappointing <laughs> to me at that time. He said, I was. He said, well, if I was, I don't even remember it. By this time, he's wearing the red gym shoes. And uh-huh. all, you know. He said, I don't even remember it. I said, well, thank you. I just want to say thank you. And that was in that last class that I had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah I mean, I think what I noticed about his story is and 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 I you know because I I read a few things that he wrote early on, including an a really interesting piece where he was in seminary at the time where he said he he wasn't encountering any any racism in the seminary and everybody was being very good to him, which mm-hmm. I think there is that is part of the story, but I think it was also part of some w- maybe wishful idealism on his part, yes. and I think he started he you know he. He told me his story as in like, can you believe when my pastor, Father Busemeyer, said, can you do anything about the people and their kind of lack of enthusiasm for mass? And and my answer was yes. Can you imagine that I answered right. yes? Like as yes. if I have any way of, do, you know. Right. So I think he, looking back on his life at the end of it, he was seeing himself as quite naive in the that's beginning. Right. Maybe that's part that's of his right. answer of like, well, I can't remember that I did all those nice things for you that's because right. he's sort of in a different place in life. And maybe as a exactly. young man, he was doing those things automatically. You know? And I think that we, we all do that as we age, we look back and think, boy, how naive was I, you know, uh, you think you can make change and you think you're in a place where you can do some really good things And I think I know, especially for me, I look back and I'm fighting some of the same battles that I was fighting when I was a teenager or when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, you know, and it really is sort of a frustrating thing, even though there has been progress made, especially in terms of racism and those things, as much as I feel there is progress I feel that there has also been th- at least that much non-progress, if that's yeah. a word. Stagnation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, or even going backward, which is... Or even going backward. Or even going backward. So I understand where he may have been at a place where he's like, wow, did I? You know, did I really do something for you? Yes, he did. I can't even really- remember that. Yes, I can't <laughs> even know? remember that. So now you teach homiletics. Yes. And you're a speaker and you're a preacher yourself. And you've talked about your love of the the spoken word and how that has propelled your career. So what role do you think Father Rivers played in your own ministry trajectory? Oh, wow. Well, just the gift. You know, he showed me what it could be like to have that gift. I never imagined that as a woman that I could have that gift. But again, I had my grandmother at home who was also gifted. And she's showing me that gift. And she's also saying to me, all things are possible. She used to say that all the time. That was our scripture. All things are possible through God who strengthens me. And I would challenge her. How? 
when I have to drink out of a separate water fountain? How? And then I would go to church and I would see Father Rivers and I would say, well, Mm. there is a possibility here. You know, he made it through. He's doing something. So if he could do it, maybe I could do something. But yet I'm still a woman, you know. But as time moved on, every door that opened, I stuck my foot in it. I just kept moving. I I stuck my foot in every door that opened. And I do believe that he was such an influence on my life. I really do. The end of my conversation with Dr. Jesse turned briefly to the end of Father Rivers' life. I know he had some discord, and I don't know what that was, uh, with the church Mm -hmm. at some point in time in his life. Uh, He had sort of moved away from it and sort of living on his own, away from the church and all that kind of thing. So, mm -mm, But I think it's it's all part of the story. Yes, it is. And it all ties together with, you know, have we listened to this voice? Right, right. Thanks ever so much to Dr. Jesse Thomas for speaking to me. We'll keep asking questions about why Father Rivers seemed to feel disconnected from the church and the liturgy he fell in love with as a boy, and that he worked so hard to claim a space in for himself and for Dr. Jesse and for so many others. Before we close this episode, I want to relay one more incident from Father Rivers' early career that speaks to this business of his starting a revolution and shows exactly what he was up against and the kinds of risks he took in order to push Catholic worship into a space that, rubrically at least, encourages cultural expression, a place that many of us take for granted. While this business of single-handedly starting a revolution became a sort of tagline Rivers used to sum up his contribution to American Catholic liturgical music, in his early days, his efforts were not single-handed whatsoever, as Rivers admitted quite freely in his personal narrative. He had Father Busemeyer, the St. Joseph's community, and the Oldenburg Franciscan sisters as his collaborators and, occasionally, as his partners in liturgical crime. You see— Word had begun to spread in Cincinnati in the late 1950s that there was something going on at St. Joseph Parish. Even before Rivers began to compose his own music, visitors began to trickle in to the weekend masses at the parish to witness the robust singing of the Misa Lupa, accompanied only by the rhythmic drumming germane to the piece. Soon, a letter arrived from the archdiocese, demanding that the parish use only, quote, sacred instruments in their liturgies. You see, in the estimation of many European-descended Americans at that time, including the powers that were, in Cincinnati, at the time, this did not include drums. I can only imagine how reading that letter must have cut the young, naive, optimistic rivers. Some weeks later, the parish was due to celebrate the Sacrament of Confirmation, which usually prompts the presence of the bishop or his auxiliary. In this case, the bishop, who was rumored to have been the writer of the unfortunate aforementioned letter, the parish prepared diligently at the direction of Father Busemeyer and with the instrumental assistance of Father Rivers. There was no organist at the parish, and so Father Rivers allowed the schoolchildren to use his set of Ugandan drums 
to keep themselves all together, for rehearsal purposes only, so he said. In Father Rivers's own words, in the back of my mind, however, I knew we had to have some instrument to help the congregation keep its ensemble. So I went to Purcell High School, where I taught, borrowed the timpani set, and snuck it up into the choir loft. When the procession stepped into the church, I unleashed the energy of the schoolchildren on the timpani. The congregation sang with all their hearts. Monsignor Clement J. Busemeyer was seen patrolling the side aisles with a smile on his face that outtoothed the Cheshire cat. The reaction to this incident, which is an incident of flagrant, you know, overt liturgical disobedience, was interesting as well. Apparently, one of the younger Franciscan sisters whom Father Rivers labels unwise asked the bishop point blank what he thought of the music, and he sort of avoided the subject. But he did say, quote, I'm forgiving these people all the singing they can get. So it was a positive reaction if it was a bit vague. In Rivers' words again, this foolish assistant pastor, by which he means himself, with the dedicated collaboration of unwise Oldenburg Franciscan sisters, had rushed in where angels feared to tread and had not been rebuked, nor reprimanded, nor scolded. Why? Because we had done it well. That's it for Episode 3 of Meet Father Rivers. One more thing. You'll notice this podcast, or at least our first few episodes, have no theme music. That may sound strange, particularly for a podcast about a musician and composer created by a musician and composer. This episode has no music because neither Father Rivers' music nor his published writings are available for purchase, podcasting, or for anything else. Yeah, it doesn't seem right to me either. And by the way, the short clips of the Misa Luba and Father Rivers' own God is Love I played in this episode are being used under the Fair Use Clause of U.S. Copyright Law, which permits the use of short portions of copyright-protected works for educational purposes in nonprofit situations like this one. So I'll be asking some questions about this and about many other aspects of Father Rivers' life and legacy as we go along. I'll also be looking for musicians and composers to speak with, especially those whose own careers and compositions have been inspired by Father Rivers, and there are many. Perhaps a few of these folks will be kind enough to lend us some music for our journey, something they feel Father Rivers may have helped to inspire in them. In that sense, I hope Father Rivers can be with us musically, because you haven't really met Father Rivers until you've heard his music. But for now, I'll just allow our theme music to be conspicuously absent. Meet Father Rivers is created, hosted, recorded, produced, and engineered by me, Emily Strand. I have some good news to share about the podcast. Meet Father Rivers is the subject of a feature article in the November edition of Pastoral Music, the flagship publication of the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, a premier professional organization for Catholic church musicians in the United States, which fosters the art of musical liturgy. NPM, as it's known, has already been a significant supporter of Meet Father Rivers, and I'm excited for our continued collaboration. Check out their website, npm.org. Do you have a story or experience of Father Rivers that you would like to share on the podcast? Please be in touch. You can email the show 
at meetfatherrivers at gmail.com. We also have some shiny new social media handles to share with you. Facebook is at Meet Father Rivers. Twitter is at Rivers Podcast. Instagram is also at Rivers Podcast. Please follow the show for updates and relevant content, and please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Positive reviews are so important to how shows like this one reach a larger audience. Or if you will, take the time to tell a friend about the show and encourage them to listen. To my guest today, Dr. Jesse Thomas, and to all who've helped make this project a reality, I am, as Father Rivers once wrote, like the saints on the morning of the Great Resurrection— eternally grateful.